slave owners, it is usually that they inherited their husband's or father's slaves when he died, that they weren't heavily involved in the system of slavery, that they were passive bystanders. So is this depiction accurate? Hi everyone, this is the Yale University Press Podcast. I'm Michael Hoke. Joining me today to talk about this is Stephanie E. Jones-Rogers, Assistant Professor of History at the University of California, Berkeley. She's the author of They Were Her Property, White Women as Slave Owners in the American South. Stephanie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. So where does the idea, first of all, of white women being sort of incidental to slavery come from? The most important place to begin um, to address that question is within the field of of history um, and the ways in which scholars have used or or decided not to use certain sources. So one of the primary um, uh, source bases or or the the documents that I use um, in in the book are the testimonies of enslaved and formerly enslaved people. And in those testimonies, formerly enslaved people frequently talk about the fact that they were owned by by white women, they were purchased or, or sold by white women, they were inherited by white women or given to white women and family members or friends and relatives. So I think the, the testimonies of formerly enslaved people have, they, they offer quite vivid um, accounts of, of white women's economic investments in the institution. Um, and also um, they show that this investment in the economy of American slavery really begin far earlier than we would imagine, often in infancy and childhood when uh, white slave-owning parents would give their daughters um, enslaved people as gifts you know, as birthday gifts, as Christmas gifts, as coming of age gifts when they turn 16, for example, or when they when they marry, um, they give them a, a number of enslaved people as wedding gifts. So um, what formerly enslaved people have to say about white women's economic investments in the institution is, is far and wide. It's very ex- expansive and complex and sophisticated. And I think that many of the, the histories of slavery um, that look at the economy of the institution of slavery in particular don't draw on those formerly enslaved people's testimonies. And so in large part, the subfield of economic history and the the, the history of, of slavery um, in the country and the economic dimensions of the institution of slavery in the country have uh, very, very often drawn upon the, the accounts that white men in particular have left behind and very few draw upon the documents that are left behind by white women themselves. In addition to that, the histories that have been produced about Southern women's experiences in relationships to slavery have also drawn upon um, sources that do not foreground the experiences of formerly enslaved and enslaved people. They often look to the letters and to the diaries of uh, white women. And in those diaries, they, they find very few accounts of women's economic investments in the institution, very little discussion about um, you know slave market activities, et cetera. And so because they don't find this extensive conversation around or debate around and discussion around these issues, they assume that these women 
have largely been kind of disconnected from the institution of slavery and its economic dimensions in particular. And then finally, I think there is a kind of a legal um, grounding or legal basis for why this story um, has rarely um, kind of merged um, in in the scholarship that um, exists today. And that has to do with um, property laws that constrain married women's ability to own, to acquire, and then to buy and sell property after um, they married. So there is a legal doctrine called coverture. Um, and we still deal with the vestiges of this, this doctrine today, wherein if a single or a widowed woman who owned property or who earned her own wages became a married woman, her husband would immediately become the owner of any property that she owned, would acquire any wealth that she possessed, and would be entitled to any wages that she earned. And so because this doctrine was considered to be the letter of the law for many historians, even up to the present day, many historians have argued that this law, this legal doctrine, constrained women's legal identities and their abilities to own property in, in such drastic ways that it was nearly impossible, or it was probably virtually impossible for women to to own enslaved people. And so many historians have simply dismissed the idea that these kinds of economic relationships could exist could exist in the first place. And so I think those three those three um, places or three um, explanations really go a long way to trying to understand why this story um, is is just now being told in its fullness. I'll say that because there have um, arguably been some historians who have suggested that this is this was possible, um, but only in rare and exceptional cases. So this book really shows that it was far from rare and it was far from exceptional. And by looking at the testimonies of formerly enslaved people, we can see that women had a pretty extensive engagement in the economic dimensions of the institution and profound investments in the continued perpetuation of the, of the institution of slavery. And what role were women playing in this? How involved were they in, in all aspects of this? It sounds like pretty heavily involved. Absolutely. So what my research, you know, uncovered was that women were what I what I call um, involved from the rooter to the tutor. You know, any Southerner will know what that means. So from the from the kind of the smallest dimensions of the institution of slavery, the economic dimension of the institution of slavery, what what are referred to as ancillary businesses. So these are women who may not have owned slaves themselves, but they they produce goods or they provided services or they they um, operated businesses that serviced the economic dimension, you know, serviced the industry that uh, that emerged around the slave trade. They were a part of the industry that emerged around the the institution of slavery. So you have women invested in slavery indirectly through their businesses, although quite directly because they benefited economically from those from those um, those relationships. But then you also have women who uh, they they buy enslaved people um, not just for themselves, but for a profit. So there are in individuals in the book that I talk about who owned slave yards. And these would be um, facilities that simply were maintained to house enslaved people between purchase and sale. So when they were purchased and they were waiting to be sold again, there were women in the South who owned establishments where those individuals would be held um, in, in, while they were waiting to be sold again. There are others who were involved um, in family businesses. So they 
they were not the the names and the faces of the of the trade of, of slave trading operations, but they may have um, provided the capital necessary to allow for those businesses to function. The capital that was required to purchase the enslaved people in the first place, and then you also have women who, on a daily basis, would buy and sell slaves in local slave markets, um, buy and sell slaves from, um, from and to um, family members as well as neighbors. So in every single dimension of slavery, in every economic dimension of slavery, you can find white women present, actively engaged, directly invested, and directly benefiting and reaping rewards of the institution of slavery and beyond ownership, simply owning enslaved people um, of their own on their own account. So you see them, I, I found them everywhere. And you mentioned um, that parents are, are raising their their daughters this way they're um, that white parents are raising their white daughters uh, in this to to sort of participate in this system what what are they doing to sort of um, groom these these young girls um, what are they teaching them uh, as far as it pertains to owning slaves so what was really fascinating to me is as I was kind of preparing, as I was researching for the book, and uh, particularly looking at what formerly enslaved people had to say about white women's economic investments in the institution, they they led me to push further back in time. So rather than looking simply at adult white slave owning, you know, slave owning females relationships to the institution and their economic investments in the institution, formerly enslaved people were talking about how these 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 relationships um, their their investments in, in in the institution of slavery began at much earlier periods when they were girls when they were adolescents and part of the discussion revolved around how slave owning parents were instrumental to that process that slave owning parents offered their daughters vicarious lessons in how to be um, ideal slave owners so they they allowed for their their daughters to observe their encounters within with enslaved people and the ways in which they conducted themselves um, in relationship to enslaved people in terms of management and discipline. They also talked about the fact that uh, young girls were present when um, slave trade negotiations were happening. So when women were either buying or selling um, enslaved people and they were privy to the conversations that were happening um, when their parents would engage in, in um, sales and negotiations or family members who were involved in the slave trade and young girls um, were aware of, of the business of those ind individual um, relatives that were involved in the slave trade. But beyond this, they allowed for young girls to 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 beat enslaved people um, when they did something that was not you know um, ideal when they behaved in ways that were less than ideal they allowed for um, for them to participate in um, acts of discipline and punishment when when parents themselves were inflicting those those acts the, that punishment they would allow for their daughters to to you know kind of take take um, a rod, for example, and whip, you know, whip um, an enslaved person um, for a little while and then allow for the parent to resume that discipline. So they had hands-on um, practice in the kind of um, all of the dimensions of slave ownership, all of the dimensions of slave management and discipline that we that we associate with the term mastery and we associate by extension with white men, 
these young girls were practicing and refining these techniques of slave ownership, slave mastery, um, when they were young girls, when they were, you know, three, uh, when they were, you know, teenagers. And then, so by the time they got to um, adulthood, when they were, when they arrived at adulthood, when they arrived at a marriageable age, they, they were perfectly capable of assuming full responsibility for, for the slaves that they were given or the slaves that they had already been given. And they were also equally prepared to discipline those individuals in ways that would maximize um, labor and, if, and make, and if make uh, the labor of those enslaved people more efficient well, with the aim to make their labor more efficient. So that process really started from childhood and it continued throughout their, their adolescence and into adulthood. You share um, a story right at the beginning of, uh, of a, a little three-year-old girl, Lisiana, who gets mad at, at, her, at the, the woman basically taking care of her and yes. says she wants her ears cut off and to get mm-hmm. a new maid. So mm-hmm. it's starting, I mean, then she's three at that point. Absolutely. And formerly enslaved people, um, you know, beyond the context of discipline, they talk about, they talk about young white girls who were infants, one year old, when they received their first slave. So yes, while they couldn't exercise mastery and they couldn't discipline and punish at the age of one, um, they certainly began to develop um, and identities that were it really intrinsically tied um, to and inextricably tied to slave ownership, um, uh, white supremacy and racial superiority and also black inferiority. So the, the, the kind of socialization that, that, we, that we've come to associate with slave ownership and with being within a slaveholding household and running a slaveholding household began in infancy for some of these young girls. And... What happens then after the Civil War ends? I mean, you have people who have been indoctrinated um, their whole lives, essentially, um, to, to sort of dehumanize a group of people. Is there, is there any soul searching that happens after the Civil War? Um, are there any a- attempts to sort of counter this indoctrination? So what's really fascinating is when you begin, for me anyway, (laughs) when I began this research um, and I started to kind of chart um, or trace white women's um, economic investments in the institution over the course of their lives, once you get to the Civil War, you really begin to understand or I I really began to interpret and understand these women's responses to the war um, in in very different ways. So, you know, we're, we're kind of familiar with, you know, Scarlett. Little Hera and you know her her kind of very emotional and sentimental responses to the war and to the loss of of the men in her life um, and and you know um, people men returning home etc. If you've you know seen Gone with the Wind, mm-hmm. there's kind of a very sentimental characterization mm-hmm. of women's responses to the Confederate loss. Um, and the kind of uh, ramifications of the the Confederate loss in the South. And so for me, as I looked at the ways in which uh, white women, white females had developed these economic relationships to slavery and how their gender identities, their their very identities were um, inextricably tied to the promise of slave ownership and to the reality of the realities of slave ownership over the course of their lives, I really I realized that 
when the Civil War comes, they're really they're they're upset about these losses and they're upset about the, the men who never come home and the, the the losses, you know, of their their male kinfolks, but they're also profoundly traumatized and upset about the fact that one of the the key um, modes of financial stability for them, economic stability for them, enslaved people, sometimes the only property that they owned, enslaved people, are no longer considered property. And with that decision, uh, with the Confederate loss and the implementation of the Emancipation Proclamation um, and all of the legal fallout from that, they are rendered penniless, destitute, completely impoverished, and for some women, um, completely dependent on individuals in their lives that they hadn't been dependent on before slavery was over. So for them, the Civil War brings about a trauma that that extends far beyond simply a human loss. You know, um, it is a direct financial loss, but also a blow to um, identities that were in large part constructed on the ability to own human beings. When they are no longer able to own human beings, they have to kind of reach within themselves to reflect upon who they are as human beings in the South, as white people in the South. And they have to reconstruct their identities in ways that don't don't rely heavily upon, don't um, um, draw upon the very idea that they could own these individuals because these individuals no longer have a value. So when you see them acting out, when I see them acting out, when I see them responding in some of the ways that they do, it seems they seem quite rational <laughs> because they are rendered penniless by the war. And in some cases, what I found is that looking through census data and other financial records, what becomes clear is that some of these women in the South are the only property owners in their households. So not only do they own the slaves, but many of these women own all the land, they own the, the everything that's on the land, all the implements, the farming tools and implements and the livestock. So they are the sole prime, the sole and primary property owners in the whole, these households. And so when the war um, basically um, strips them of much of their wealth, their families also are adversely impacted, profoundly impacted by these women's economic losses, even though we tend to think about it in the completely opposite way, that men lose all of this stuff and that w that women just are the victims, you know, um, the indirect um, victims of men's losses. But in the work that I've, that I've done in this book, what becomes clear is that in some cases it was the other way around. So the, the, when the, the war is over, women, um, they try to hold on to, to the institution of slavery by implementing um, or helping to implement or developing um, labor systems, quote unquote, free labor systems that very much resemble slavery in everything but name. They um, force um, enslaved people to enter into contracts, which um, basically uh, replicate the, the circumstances of slavery. Then what you also find is that women who are literate, typically those women who uh, hailed from elite slaveholding families, they begin to write 
um, right into kind of the lost war, lost cause um, nostalgia, the genre of lost war and this lost cause nostalgia, um, this literature after the war, where they kind of sanitize slavery, they sanitize white women's roles in slavery. And one of the ways in which they, they sanitize white women's roles in slavery is to completely remove the economic investments that these women had in the institution. So there's a lot of soul searching that happens. And that soul searching is, I think, directly tied to women's uh, uh, slave ownership prior to the war. And then their loss, um, in many cases, their loss of all of the wealth that they possessed before the war was over. Is there a line to be drawn from uh, this aspect of history to some of the things we hear about in 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 the news today? Um, there's a lot of stories about, uh, for example, white women calling the police on black people who are not breaking the law. Um, is this is this just a product of this long history that is sort of unexplored up till now? What you find is that from colon- from the, the the period of settlement, from colonial settlement to the present day white women have deeply invested in a racially divided social order wherein white whiteness was conflated with superiority and freedom, blackness with infer- inferiority and enslavement. And they have continued to invest in the, the kind of perpetuation and the sustaining of that racially divided social order to the present day in different guises in some cases, but nevertheless with the same end, and that is to reinforce um, and to, to, to support and sustain a racially divided social order. In the case of um, uh, the kind of power that the calling the police confers, um, that, that the kind of power that comes from being able to call the police on uh, people of color who are just doing regular things but seem to be out of place um, in the minds of these, these white women, um, that power is in, in some ways directly connected to the kind of power that they wielded in the context of slavery. Um, for example, there were laws on the books in virtually every Southern state, which empowered white women to call upon patrollers who were very similar to police, the, that, the police in, the, in, that, in that time, they were very, very much um, like the police today, um, who would kind of um, put black people in their place. So they could call upon those those um, those patrollers um, or patrols, as they called them, um, to uh, to con- to put black people in their place, to let enslaved people and free free African Americans know that they were out of place and where they belonged. They could actually um, they had they were empowered by law to shoot, maim. Um, and otherwise to kill an enslaved person who was on their plantation without what was called a pass, which was essentially um, a document which um, identified the enslaved person, said where the enslaved person was supposed to be going, how long they were supposed to be there, who their owners were, and who they when they were supposed to return. If they didn't have those passes, the law actually empowered white women to to stop it, enslaved people, ask them where they were going, ask them why they weren't there <laughs> to ask for that paper. And if they didn't produce the paper or if they resisted um, attempts to identify them and to determine where they were, why they were there, who they were, et cetera, um, white women were allowed by law to, to, to brutalize those enslaved people and to kill them if necessary. So the kind of power that we see white women wielding in the present day by simply making a phone call 
um, is very is very similar to the kind of power that they exercised in the context of slavery. Um, and and so I see very 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 important parallels between um, that power um, in in the the power in the that we see in the present and the power that we saw in the past. And and the other I think that's more important is that you know there's an entire entire chunk of of our history that kind of drops out of the conversation um, when even in the present day people talk about you know why um, major- these majorities of white women are voting for. Or Republican candidates who seem to be um, standing for things that are um, in direct um, violation of their best interests, that, that, that they don't st- support or stand um, for things that would be in their best interests. And I see, um, you know, this the, the entire 20th century kind of helps to connect what the, the history of the women that I'm talking about in the 19th century with, uh, with what's going on today. Um, you see women after the war, as, as I explained, there's, you know, this profound um, kind of reflective process that happens where again, they are asked to um, to figure out where they stand. After the war, you see um, 500,000 women in, in the, the entire country joining the KKK. A half a million women joined the KKK in the early 1900s. Um, and this is really interesting because it happens at right around the time when women win the vote, when women earn the right to vote. They win the right to vote. So what you see is that the KKK now understands that white women are a voting bloc and that if they can get them to vote for candidates that support uh, kind of the um, the agenda of the KKK, that they have more, far more power um, in the, in the poll at the polls than they would have if they were to completely alienate white women. So what you see is that in this kind of direct relationship between white women's voting rights, their ability to vote, and white, there's a direct tie between white supremacy and these white women's ability to vote. And you begin to see the KKK recruit heavily, recruit these women heavily. Um, and so you see 500,000 women join the KKK in the 1920s and 1930s. And this is throughout the country, not just in the South. You also see um, um, women, white women participating in lynching rituals in which white men are accused of, of crimes against white white women, typically sexual crimes against white women, or just general crimes, um, and see white women present at those lynching rituals where you can see them standing in front of um, bodies, black men's bodies dangling from trees. There's even um, a really poignant case um, in Florida of a man named Reuben Stacy who was lynched for allegedly um, a trying to enter a white woman's home. Um, it was simply, he was hungry, he was asking for something to eat. But there's a photograph that's captured of of his lynching and his body is hanging from a tree and there are several young white girls dressed in their Sunday best standing in front of his body. One girl is smiling at the camera. So you see that there are these instances throughout the 20th century in which white women, white females um, stand very proudly for white supremacy and do what's necessary 
to support and sustain um, white supremacy. And you see that later during the, the um, after um, Brown versus the Board of Education, you see white women at the forefront of anti-integrationist activism, um, white mothers in particular, and that's also in the North in places like Boston. Um, and similarly, um, you see white women joining uh, white supremacist organizations um, throughout the, the 20th century and into the, the early 21st century. So all of these, I think this, this longer history makes everything that's happening in this moment make a little bit more sense, um, you know, um, because when they're voting, yes, there are, of course, women who vote for candidates like Trump, candidates like Brian Kemp, candidates like Roy Moore for reasons that have something else, have nothing to do with race, perhaps. Um, but there are also women who understand that these men stand for white supremacy and stand for, um, and that they're going to implement policies and have they have a, a political platform that supports and sustains white supremacy. And they decide to vote for these men because, as their as their foremothers had done um, before them, they decide that whiteness has more value and accords them more power than their gender. Yeah, and there's no doubt that um, America, particularly white America, has a has a hard time uh, talking about race and racism and, and often ignores that it even right. happens. Um, right. So how, how does this change the conversations either that we are having because right now there are some conversations going on? Um, yes. How does it change the conversations that we are having or – does it suggest we should be having different conversations in the year 2019? I think it suggests that we should be having different conversations because right now the conversation that uh, that that begins almost immediately after some of the exit poll uh, data <laughs> comes in is, oh, my God, what is wrong with white women? <laughs> you know, and, and everybody's scratching their heads trying to figure out why white women would vote in the ways that they voted. Um, and they're looking at the, you know, the poll data and they're puzzled. Mm -hmm. And I think that conversation is 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 not that is not the conversation we should be having. We should be having a conversation which allows for us to understand um, the power of race, not simply um, you know, in the lives of white men who are voting for, who are obviously voting in their best interest, but also the power of race in 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 the, the context of, of voting patterns for white women. I think we do need to be having a different conversation, a conversation which is not one in which white women are automatically the allies of other dispossessed groups, or white women are always the individuals who um, see themselves as um, oppressed by their gender and thus as the natural allies for other dispossessed groups. We should be thinking about white women in the same kinds of complicated um, and fraught ways that we think about other voter voting blocks. You know, they're not a monolith, um, you know, and that's obvious, but we also need to factor in the fact they perhaps in those moments may be seeing themselves not simply as female voters, but as white voters too. Um, so I think the conversation needs to be far more nuanced and it needs to be more complex. And it certainly shouldn't be um, kind of uh, shaped by this shock and awe that white women would would vote, um, would vote in the ways that they have. Um, and, you know, in large part because we see them as female voters first and not as as uh, uh, female voters who also happen to be white. OK, well, the book is They Were Her Property. Stephanie, thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed my talk with you today. 
That does it for this week's episode. You can find more at yalebooks.yale.edu or on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or your favorite app. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating.